I'm Chris Lindstrom, and this is the Food About Town podcast. In episode 70 of the Food About Town podcast, I talked with Phil Munson of Fisher Hill Farms. This was recorded a little while back, so uh, this was during uh, CSA sign-up hotspot time. But um, if you haven't signed up for one yet, Fisher Hill CSA sign-up is still available. Uh, It doesn't start for a little while, so don't be afraid and definitely reach out to them if you haven't joined a CSA yet. It's a great way to do it. Theirs is pick as you go, so you can pick your produce. And you can find them at the Rochester Public Market, the Brighton Market, and at the Canandaigua Farm Market. So I hope you enjoy. We talked to talked to Phil about how his farm runs, what kind of diversity they have, what products they offer, and some about how you know life on the farm is. So I hope you enjoy. It was a little bit different podcast than we've done before. And I hope to talk to some more farmers uh, as we move forward during this season. So if you did like it, uh, go buy some produce from him at the markets. And let me know on social media, Food About Town on Facebook, at Stromy on Twitter and Instagram. And uh, stay tuned for a little mini episode early next week, trying out something a little bit different. So thanks for listening and see you soon. So we're here on another schizophrenic Rochester winter day that I think we're all getting used to now. And I repeat, disconcerting schizophrenic Rochester winter day. Um, (laughs) And I'm here with uh, a gentleman I've been actually looking forward to talking to for a while. Why don't you introduce yourself, sir? Phil Munson, Fisher Hill Farm. Oh, hold on. I didn't turn on his microphone. And wait a second. Now, go ahead, mystery guest. Check, check, check. There it is. Yeah, now I hear hear myself. That's a little <laughs> weird. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's yeah. So we've got our guest is wearing headphones and is uh, learning how, learning how it sounds. Yeah, this is my first podcast of any sort. So, oh, cool. Yeah, I'm glad to be uh, glad to be doing this the first time. Um, so Fisher Hill Farm is our business. We're out of Bristol. My name is Philip Munson. Cool. So Bristol, in comparison to Rochester, which is most of my listening base, is what about a little over an hour away, right? Well, you think like everybody else does, and uh, on a Saturday morning, I can get to to the market in about thirty five, forty minutes. So really, it's we we are the northest most point in Bristol. Part of the farm is in East Bloomfield, so it's not really that far of a jaunt. No, I mean thirty five minutes is on the way home. Nothing. It's a different story when I got to deal with traffic, but yeah, it. 3.30 in the morning on a Saturday. No <laughs> not, big, much, not much traffic at 3.30 in the morning? No big deal. <laughs> so, and, um, so plugs out of the ways. Um, so where can people generally find you? You're a, a regular in the market scene here in Rochester. We are. We, are, uh, we market 52 weeks a year. I don't know. It must be crazy. But um, you can find us at Rochester Public Market on Saturday, Brighton on Sundays, all the time. And then um, in the summertime, you can find us... In Canandaigua on the weekends. Um, How's that market scene in Canandaigua? It's good. It's not as vibrant as it is here, but um, still, I mean, granted, we we do a, a one one hour every other week in the wintertime, and then Saturdays, June through October, and then Mondays, we do a CSA with Thompson Hospital, and um, we've actually gotten away from a lot of little markets. We used to do Geneva. We used to do Victor. We used to do South Wedge. Wow. We used to do Pittsford. Um and we kind of sort of focused on what works and um, gone from there. Yeah. So those are those are the main hubs for where you can find your stuff. And it's um, we're coming up on CSA sign-up time. It is. The, the phone's been ringing. I mean, um, we haven't really rolled out too much other than my wife, wife went to the CSA fair at the Culinary Center two weekends ago. It's a beautiful facility, isn't it? It is. It's phenomenal. It's People should go if you've never been just for a class or just to hang out or even go to the restaurant. I mean, it's top notch. Yeah, I mean, their and their sourcing is uh, pretty impeccable too. They're really dedicated to local sourcing, which we're going to talk about some here today. Yeah, and local sourcing has gotten a lot easier. So um, 
you don't have to work as hard as they did before, but they're still Absolutely. focused on um, getting local products and great products at that. Yeah. So, yes, this is kind of the CSA fair time. CSAs are, for those that aren't aware, this is, you know, end of March, early April is prime sign-up time for CSAs. Yeah, we try to push it now because it, you know, we're a small business and you're looking at the office clerk. I mean, my wife helps out some, but when things get hopping and we're outside all day long and come back in and answer emails and phone calls and it just makes for a long day and then they don't all get answered in a timely fashion and in this day and age people want it now so it's um hard to provide that service when we get real busy well so let's let's talk about let's talk about csas and what for you what that means as a small business i know there's been some recent talks about that here in rochester uh there was a csa conversation on evan dawson's show connections not that long ago but for for those that aren't familiar with CSAs, what what is what does people signing for a CSA do for you? Well, for us, I, I ran the numbers, and the CSA really is about ten percent of our total income, so it's not huge. Um, I guess what mainly the main reason I got into it because um, I felt like I needed to get on the bandwagon because a lot of people were doing it, and I didn't want to fall behind the curve. It's nice to have those extra checks come in this time of year. I mean. We do prepay for a lot of our expenses, but um, still we got payroll and labor, especially in April and May. So those those checks really help. And then um, in the summertime, it's really kind of nice because you build a relationship with these fem- people and families, and, and you're not really trading money. They've already paid, so they get their stuff, and you know they're real happy to get it, and it's pretty neat. Yeah. Well, because the money up front, and um, we were talking a little bit before. I mean, I I grew up in the greenhouse business. You know, it's a you know small family business, which I'm assuming yours is mostly. Um, you know, that time when you're growing and not selling anything, that upfront money has to be a little bit has to be a little bit nice. Yeah, but I I have to say we're a little different in that because I mean we do markets 52 weeks a year. That's and, true, and we do a heavy emphasis on storage crops. So, you know, we've had great markets all winter long. So, you know, the checks are nice seeing them come in, but we're not dependent on that to buy seeds. I already paid for the seeds. I paid for a lot of supplies last year. So, um, you know, this CSA really makes it so we don't dip into um, operating line of credit for, you know, minor expenses that we weren't planning on. Or, um, I mean, it's nice to have the extra cash flow because we might take on a project, might pour concrete in a chicken house or who knows what, but right. the money's there to use. Yeah. Well, let's take a quick step back. Let's talk about, let's talk about Fisher Hill Farm. So what what is the scope of what you guys do? So you're you're a I don't know what to call you guys. You're you're a I, I haven't been out to the farm, which I feel bad about, and only thirty five minutes away I'll be coming out sometime <laughs> soon. Um so what 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 kind of farm would you describe yourself as? I would say we're a vegetable farm first, poultry farm second. Um do about twenty five to thirty acres of fresh market vegetables for summertime sales and for storage crops like beets and um, cabbage and all that kind of stuff we sell in the wintertime. Um, the poultry, we do eggs all year long, but we, we fluctuate the number of hens depending on the season, depending on the markets we have. And then in the wintertime, we're not generally not raising poultry, but we're selling frozen poultry that we have uh, in the freezer. So Yeah, I mean, then for those that haven't had uh, Phil's eggs before, they are cream of the crop, and a lot of restaurants agree. It's, you know, it's, a, it's a fantastic product. And we actually grabbed one of his um, stewing hens, which I, mean, I think that's something that I really appreciate that you've started to do at the markets is selling off, off typical, off supermarket items. Well, at the public market especially, it's such an ethnic culture there and melting pot of different cultures that there's people looking for that kind of chicken. They don't want the chicken that we have in America because they want something that like they had running around their yard in their country. And a lot of them truly want to buy it live, but I'm not willing to offer that option for many reasons. But um, sure. people love it. They've been asking for it. And, you know, we can't sell all of our hens that way, but um, it's nice to maybe build up the market. So someday if we can get rid of our old hens, you know, we have that option available. Yeah, I mean, it's and for those that aren't familiar, you know, when you're getting it's an older chicken and it's not really not a prime roasting bird at that point. It's not what most people, what we consider here, a roasting bird at that point. But people here are looking for bone broth and chicken feet. I mean, chicken feet, people ask for all the time, and um, we don't don't offer that option. 
but you're getting the same thing with the laying hen. You're getting that rich stock. You're getting, you know, the gelatinous that you would get from the feet. You're getting that in the carcass. Full flavor, too. Yeah. Because it's an older bird. Older bird's more flavor. Yep. Um, so it's, you know, it's nice. It, you know, brings different people to the stand and um, people like it, love it, and come back and buy more. We'll see how it goes when the weather gets nice and people aren't feeling like uh, stewing chickens <laughs> anymore. But Yeah. Well, because I actually just, um, I just bought a, bought one of the countertop pressure cookers. Yep. Which is kind of... I mean, if you're stewing things and you want to do it not in five or six hours, um, you can do it in an hour. You can cook a whole bird like that in an hour to complete. And it's a it's a great it's a great tool. Yeah, there must have been something going on last weekend because you and multiple people. Oh yeah, I got a pressure cooker. This I don't know what they had a name for it, but Instant Pot is what a lot of people say. Yeah, but yeah. You can you they're all over. They're actually they're in they're in Walmart now. Um, it was a big Christmas time thing this year. I think they've come back sort of in style. I mean, in the old days, people used pressure cookers all the time, and then people got a little scared about it blowing up in their kitchen, and you know now they're back into it. I mean, we we have one. I mean, we she get my wife gets on kicks once in a while with beets. You know, you can run off a batch of beets in uh, I think eight or ten minutes, and it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, I I mean the the convenience. You know, the stovetop ones are nice, but you have to you have to finicky with it and yep. make sure your heat's right. Like this new one, I just hit two buttons. It goes up to pressure for exactly the amount of time I want, and then it goes off and keeps it warm for a while. It's like the convenience of a, of a, uh, um, you know, the, the the stupid slow cookers that people have <laughs> that are worthless. Sorry, everybody that uses those things, um, because your temperatures are bad. Everything just gets watery and dried out, um, and it doesn't render you know the the gelatin fast mm-hmm. enough. So it doesn't do all the good things that a pressure cooker does. Yeah, and the new ones have their you know, computer controlled, so they yeah. have safety features built into it. So, you know, I can't see how it could go wrong. I mean, it That's could. That's the amazing but, part. But, yeah. I mean, really convenient. And for stuff like that, when you have the option of getting fuller flavor out of out of a bird. And that's, you know, I, I try to eat less meat. I try to do that. But when I do, I'd prefer to eat the stuff that's fuller flavor using something that might not typically be used by generic white people. Um, and that's one of the other reasons I'll stop in is um, Phil sells uh, poultry hearts and livers. Yeah, I mean, we, we used to compost them, tell you the truth, and people kept asking for them. And, you know, now, you know, we sell quite a few every week. And um, so, honestly, I think some people feed them to their dogs and their cats as treats. And, they, I mean, it's great for that. I mean, they're... But- Great in nutrients and really, I mean, it's a fantastic product. But it, you know, it's something that, you know, we're able to use, utilize more of the animal and, you know, that those little packages, they all add up. So, you know, offset some gas expenses or a little bit of labor. Yeah. And for me, when I, when I see, you know, chicken livers, I mean, you go back to, you know, early stages of the modern culinary scene. You go to, you know, chicken liver mousses and chicken liver pâtés. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the early day. If you want to, take your history back to the early days of you know the french culinary scene liver was huge people just chop it up with onions and do it the you know the easy way and fry oh, yeah. them up in the frying pan and like oh we haven't had that in so long and my husband hates it but i love it i'm gonna make it for myself and <laughs> there you go. i mean liver and onions used to be a main dish yeah i mean big beef livers but you know um that's nice my chicken livers they're all really mild yep and as an american society i think we've gotten away from the you know, the prime, you know, the lesser prime cuts that people, you know, think less of, but there's still, you know, there's nothing wrong with a chicken liver or a heart. I mean, it's good quality meat. Oh, the hearts are phenomenal. I mean, uh, one of our one of our favorite restaurants in town uh, is a more traditional uh, Sichuan Chinese restaurant. And um, one of the dishes they serve is just, it's called spicy chicken. I mean, most of their definitions are very, very light. Uh, but spicy chicken is, you know, just like diced chicken thighs. Um, like, uh, um, I forget what kind of, what kind of, uh, flour it is, but you know, it's a light, it's a light coating and then it's got like spicy numbing, uh, coating on it. Mm-hmm. Well, they do that with the, like the chicken thighs and then the other version, which is almost is a lot better is the chicken heart option where they do it with chicken hearts. You mm-hmm. just get this just pile of chicken hearts cooked the same way. Yep. And it's great. I mean, the flavor is phenomenal. But what's funny is we we've been doing ducks now this last season. We're going to continue to do it this season. But nobody wants duck hearts. That's really? the it's 
I tried a few times and we packaged them up and they nobody really seemed to catch on. So that's weird. Yeah, because it's. I mean, see my wife sitting in the chair over there. She's like, I want them. I, want I have one customer. Then he's kind of a. Well, he is a food nut and he's a caterer and. He's like, oh yeah, I saw these in a restaurant in New York City. They skewered them and they turned them with pineapple and blah blah blah. And yeah. So he he loves them, but otherwise they weren't really a big ticket. That's amazing because I mean you look at and again I think that's a good point what you were talking about before with you know the stewing hens being sort of a multicultural thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean hearts and livers and all those things. You look at uh, like example the the Japanese culture. Uh, you know they do these these little grilled these places that are just, all they do is these tiny little grills, charcoal grills on skewers. And they do tons of hearts and livers mm-hmm. and all these things like that. That's a huge part of their food culture. Mm-hmm. And we were a bit squeamish about that <laughs> stuff. I, I think that's kind of ties back to the supermarket mentality of America. Yeah, and you know, the, the Depression era and all those people, you know, that grew up through the Depression and had no money, and they utilized everything. I mean, nothing went to waste because they didn't have any money, and, you know, you used what you had, and nowadays, I guess that really doesn't apply anymore, cause, but um, unfortunately, a lot of that stuff just skips generations. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I think, for me, the weird part is um, how uncomfortable people are with our food process. I don't know if you've how how that comes across to you as you know b- people buying directly from a farmer. Does that come across to you when people see stuff like, you know, chicken hearts or things like that? Yeah, some people point at it like, "Oh, look at that. Look at that. It's a chicken heart." And you know, they kind of gawk at it and but people are so far removed from the whole process of any agriculture. I mean, they probably don't even know some people don't even know where, you know, certain vegetables come from and seasons and everything else and you throw a uh, organ meat in there, and they're just too much. Yeah, when everything comes in a package, and everything's you know boneless, skinless chicken breast in a package with styrofoam and plastic on top of it. Yeah, um, you kind of lose that whole. I mean, I think it's one of those things that it's worth thinking about, and you, maybe it's it's hard. I was talking about this with the wife. We were driving out to uh, driving out to uh, Cartwright's Maple Tree Inn. The yeah, other, we were yesterday. there. Uh, Actually, on uh, last Thursday. Yeah, we drove out yesterday. Um, first time. It was our first time ever going there. Okay. Really fascinating We've been place. many, many times. A really interesting place. If you, if you haven't been, it's 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 all, it's all a novelty of a place. It's a hole in the wall in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, a hole in the wall that hold, that seats like 300 some odd people. But you can the place is progressively growing. I mean, there's the original dining room. There's added edition one, edition two. And um, every year, they you know make subtle improvements. And um, Yeah. Basically, it's this giant maple processing building in the middle of nowhere. And for, what was it, like 12 weeks? From uh, Valentine's Day weekend till sometime in April. Yeah, so like maybe 10, 10 weeks or less, they they serve all-you-can-eat buckwheat pancakes with their own maple syrup yep. for like 7 bucks, And it's ridiculous. And they're, I personally, those are my favorite pancakes because I don't like a thick, doughy, cakey pancake. Yeah. And these are just paper-thin, you know, light. You can just one right after another. Yeah, really well done. Maple syrup's good. It's yep. real maple syrup. None of this pancake syrup nonsense. Yep. Hate that stuff. Uh, and if you like it, I mean, I mean, you're wrong. That's fine. I don't mind. You, you can enjoy it. You're wrong, but that's fine. <laughs> um, but yeah, we, we were out there and we were, um, what the hell was I talking about? Um, the wife's correct. Oh, yeah. Um, tangent, tangent. Yeah, yeah, tangent, tangent. Um, you know, you, you talk, we were talking a little bit about stuff like that where people are very disconnected with, people don't make these, you don't take the time to think about uh, how you feel about things like this, mm-hmm. um, that separation. We were talking about, about something else, but you know, it's hard to feel everything all the time. You can't, if you eat meat, you can't, feel, you can't feel strongly about it every time. But I think it's for those that choose to still eat meat, it's, it's worthwhile to take, take a look at what you're doing, why you're doing it, and understand that it's coming from an animal. And I'm sure that's obviously very... And it's part of your day-to-day life. Yeah, I mean, in, in this day and age, there's a lot of great choices. I mean, you could buy certified organic that's locally raised. You can get conventional. I mean, you can get, you know, local, you know, that might be the cheapest. And, you know, it's all, you know, local and really good. So it just depends 
what level you want to go in at and, you know, what relationship you want to build with a farmer and go from there. And I think that's part of the important thing, too, with whether you're doing a CSA or you're shopping at a market is trying to get to know the people that you're the people that are growing your food. Um, I imagine that's kind of that's a nice thing you mentioned with the CSA, but people that become regulars and actually ask you questions. Yeah, I mean, especially especially at Rochester. I mean, there's one family there's uh, that come every Saturday. I mean, there's the father, there's the two kids, and now the kid, you know, they have their own wives, and now they have their own kids. So it's a whole generation thing. They go to get coffee, they hang out as a family. I mean, they do this every Saturday, fifty two weeks a year. Once in a while, they're not all there because of family obligations or the one um, her she's due with a baby any day, so she might not be there next week, but they're there. I mean, it could be the coldest, crummiest day of the whole year, and the whole unit's there. Yeah. And it's always part of their Saturday routine. That's awesome. Yeah. But, I mean, it's it's great to see people getting more engaged with, you know, the with the food system. Yeah. Uh, because it's it's important, and dealing with dealing with local farms brings a lot of value to you. I mean, I'm going, I'm going to say personally, it's given a lot of value to me dealing with farms where I can trust what they're doing, that I understand what they're doing generally. And if I, if I ask a question, they can answer it. It's a, that's kind of a big thing to me. I'm, I'm, a, I'm an information guy. I want to know that the guy growing my food knows what he's doing. Right. And why. Yeah, and it's, you know, generally people ask questions and they're more than happy to answer them. And once in a while they're like, oh, what variety is this? And like, oh, man, I'm really sorry, but that, we planted that so long ago in the greenhouse, and now it's this and that, and <laughs> I can't keep all the names straight. But Of course. You know, if they ask, you know, what day was the chicken butchered, or how old was it, or, you know, when did you collect eggs last? And they have no clue that we collect eggs two to three times a day. I mean, you don't just go out there when you feel like it. Two or three times a day? Yeah. I didn't know it was that many times a day. Yeah. every The first pick is, you know, generally the best one, and then, you know, we try to get them... Especially this time of year, you know, you leave them in the box for night, they freeze. Yeah. Once in a while, you get egg eaters, so, you know, you want to keep ahead of them. No, I mean, it's kind of that time of year. It's, uh, it's a good food source for an <laughs> egg eater out there. Yeah. Um, it's got to be kind of interesting. I mean, do you have a fair amount of predators that hit in and around the farm? Or? No, no, not really. Actually, it's the hens themselves that will eat the eggs. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, you're actually talking about... Ch- yeah. Are you laughing at me, girl? <laughs> It's, oh yeah, so my my wife's sitting in the chair over there, and she's she loves all this stuff. I mean, she's really into the chickens. You know, one of her friends has chickens too. So, and she didn't want to be a part of the conversation. No, but, of course so, not. I asked for her to sit in. No, no, she's sitting in the chair drawing her horses. But I, as as the hens <laughs> get older, the sometimes the shells get a little thinner, and uh, you know they get a whole bunch in a box, and they step on it, and it breaks, and then of course they love it and they eat it, sure. and then uh, hey. once in a while you get ones that really pointy beaks, and they're really good at breaking them, and <laughs> but it makes a mess that turns the whole batch in the box all yolky. Uh, it's just gross. So oh yeah, I would imagine. Yep. Uh, so, um, I think what I wanted to pivot onto was, um, so you're you're a diverse farm. You've got chickens. You've got the vegetables. We're very you diversified. Do, you yes. do a lot of rotation and stuff, right? I mean, the, I've I've read some about it, but you know, it's involved with rotation and making sure you know the chickens are fertilizing this area and et cetera. Yeah, et cetera. Um, the pasture we rotate just to keep them on clean grass. They use the grass up, and then we you know we want to move the nitrogen around too. So we're moving the birds around um, within the fields. We try to rotate different crops to different places for disease and bug pressure. Try to you know uh, minimize that as much as possible. Yeah, uh, I mean that's kind of the kind of the joy of a non monoculture diverse farm. Yeah, I mean two weeks ago we were out in Missouri and there was two crops out there: it was corn and soybeans. That was it. We didn't see a single dairy farm. We saw a few beef cattle, but that was it. And I couldn't imagine you know literally putting your eggs in two baskets. I mean, yeah. If either one of the markets tank, I mean, what are you left with? I mean, well, and that's kind of the you know the there are methods to deal with it, but the problem is then there's then your insurance and government incentives, and that's all your growth. But what about I mean rotation? I mean, there's no wheat. There's you know there's a lot of crops that you know benefit the soil that they're not even growing because they don't have a market for, so they don't even do it. So, and with us, I mean, like last year was the driest year we ever had, and about August we ran our pumped the pond dry. So you know some crops did great, some didn't do good at all, but we're diversified enough so. If some one isn't bad, you know, the other one kind of helps get you through. Yeah. Well, and I think for, for me, 
when I see a diverse farm, it's, it's kind of the, it's a more sustainable method. It is, but I, I commend the guys that, you know, raise vegetables and maybe they do six to 10 things and that's all they do. And they do a really good job at it. You know, yeah. when you're raising so many different crops, it's really hard to stay on top of it all. But um, we try to do our best. Yeah, and that's, yeah, it's, it is a balancing act. Um, I, th- I think it's nice to be able to go to one guy where you know you're doing a lot of good things. But yeah, it's, it's a good point. I mean, when you're not, you're not a huge operation. How many, how many people are working at any given time? We have one full-time employee year-round. And then um, in the summertime, it can vary from five to seven, what's yeah. going on. And then the family. And then the family. But, I mean, the, the girls, our oldest just turned six. The youngest is a year and a half. So they're not offering a whole lot of support yet. But, they, I mean, they help some. And my wife, you know, is keeping after them and trying to keep them in check. So, sure. She, I mean, she still does the Saturday market. She helps on Sundays. But um, she washes eggs and she contributes. But, um, you know, as the girls get older, we're looking, you know, should be really nice. Yeah. Well, it's... I, I I have a lot of, I don't know, I have conflicting thoughts about the family business, you know. I, I really, I think I learned a lot from it growing up, working on, a, working on a family business, working, you know, after school, working weekends, doing all that stuff. I think I learned a lot. I think it was worthwhile. Um, it's a different, it's a different lifestyle. Doing, I mean, doing the whole farming thing, whether it's, I mean, we're not quite as extreme with time management, everything else, but um, living that life is, it's a very different, it's very different than, a I don't know what you'd call standard nowadays. Yeah. And you know, it's, I would hope that they would learn a diversified skill sets. I mean, if they're one day they're at the market, you're adding in your head, making change, interacting with people. The next day you might be home taking care of livestock. You might be fixing the tractor. I mean, you know, what we do from day to day is completely different. I mean, it varies all the time. Yeah. So how did, how did you, how did you end up getting into farming? What it was, what what started for you? Um, my parents started with, um, we had 100 sows, farrow to finish, and we raised um, grain and cash crops to support that. And um, ultimately, the market wasn't very good for that. So then dad decided, well, let's try selling just pork. We'll just, you know, process, have it processed and we'll sell that. So they opened a small retail location near Candegua in a little hamlet called Cheshire, which is ultra tiny. And um, so, you know, then you get the pork and you thought, well, we need milk. We need this. So then it turned into like a little mini grocery store and it, it worked, but it, you know, it never really was, you know, paying all the bills. Small town grocery store. Yep. Yeah. So then they got into the catering business and then we started raising vegetables. It just not as a hobby, but we already did a little bit of it. Then we started doing markets and um I think we started out with a couple of markets and at that point, you know, markets are really trendy and hot and um I mean they still are now, but I don't think they're as strong as they used to be. Yeah. When when was that? When they started doing the markets? We they never did the markets. Oh, when it you just, started. Just my wife and I. Um I think it was about almost fifteen years ago. Okay. Yes. Yeah, this this summer will be the tenth season of Brighton. Okay. So um Yeah, I wasn't as engaged back then. For me it seems like it's getting busier and busier now. It is, but you hear people talk about the weeknight, weekday markets. They're, you know, the weeks, weekdays are struggling a little bit. Yeah. They're not seeing the people. They're hard to keep vendors that, you know, you go to the markets, you got to make enough money to make it worthwhile. And people don't realize you got to load the truck, you got to set up the tents, you got to put the tables out, you know, you got to make it look nice, you got to sell, then you can bring it home and you got to put it away. And it's a lot of work. And, you know, if you're not making a certain quota, then you just can't do it. Yeah. I mean, the, when, when the, when the payoff isn't worth that investment, I mean, it's it's a long day just with the setup and teardown. Yeah. I mean, even a couple of years ago before we had all the kids, I mean, we used to do South Wedge on Thursday. So I do the public market in the morning, go from there to South Wedge, which was a great market. And it was a beautiful location. It was. I, I It was that, was. that place was packed almost and, every Thursday. Yeah. And even that market, it generally started to see a little bit of a decline and and then, you know, as Lily got a little older and, you know, being gone from, you know, six in the well, even like five in the morning and get back at nine at night, you just couldn't couldn't do it with all yeah. the animals in that. So Sure. I mean, yeah, it's a long day when when it's mainly you and one other yeah. you know, one other person in the wintertime. That's yeah. That's that's a rough day. <laughs> but it's summertime, so you got twenty weeks to make what you can. So Yeah. Um Yeah, I suppose that's that's an interesting way to pivot talking about the um, talking about local and restaurants, 
because um, you do some direct sourcing to restaurants, correct? Yep, we pretty much Lento, Flower City Bread, and then um, Farmhouse Table is a small caterer. Um, we do directly with them. Yep. I think uh, Marty's buys some eggs from you guys as well. Yep, Marty with in the su- only pretty much in the summertime when we're at the, the Brighton Market. Yep. Because I mean, yeah, that's yeah, working with restaurants directly has to be, you know, it's a different change of pace, right? It is, and you know, it's dealing with the restaurants. Sometimes they deal with units that don't quite jive with. You know, we have to make sure we're on the same page, and um, usually we figure it out after a little bit, but um. And then with the restaurant business, it's um, up and down. I mean, they might be kicking it one week, and the next week it rained on the weekends, and people didn't weren't found the need to go out, and they don't need as much. So yeah, yeah, because I know you were you were doing more ducks this year, this last year because there was more demand. Yeah, we um, our main wholesaler, Headwater Food Hub. Yep, um, enough. To, we've had Phil on before, and you know, he's. Um, I, I think the the whole creation of that's been kind of a boon for some of this stuff for local sourcing in a lot of ways yeah it's interesting how it's growing i mean they just finished a huge expansion up there and but we first started working with them when they well the the good food collective was the main thing and then at the end of the week they had all the stuff left over because when you'd run a csa people never pick it all up and those guys you know might have extra so they were selling to restaurants they were meeting at the public market i believe on friday mornings it's like an impromptu thing to use extras and so the wholesale business sort of grew out of that, but now it's, it, I mean, it's huge. They got, I don't know, they must have three to five, maybe six trucks on the road. Not all the time, but they definitely have busier days of the week. They do delivery. Yeah. Because, I mean, that's that's kind of a, it allows you if, you, if you get a little bit extra or a little bit of this, they can probably get it around to different businesses. Yeah, and it's easier for me if restaurants says, oh, we'd like to carry your product, and, you know, I said, well, you know, Headwater Foods, they deliver to the city twice a week. You know, maybe give Phil a call and talk to him, you know, and, you know, like our stuff and other people's stuff, you know, might be a good avenue and a good way for you to do it. Yeah. And it's, it's you know, one place for when restaurants are sourcing, they can deal with one place. Not not entirely, but it's you can get a lot of diverse things from one place. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're strictly local. So, I mean, if you're looking for lemons and limes, they're not going to have them for you. But No, um, there's not, not as many local lemons and limes as you'd think. No. <laughs> but, unfortunately, in the restaurant business, you like to make cocktails and drinks. And, yep. you know, that's a pivotal part of the bar business. So, um, you know, you end up dealing with Jumbronis or, um, you know, other companies. But Sure. Um, All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break and uh, continue on with some food conversation. We'll be right back. Hey everyone, I want to take a second to talk about a new project I'm part of that I'm really excited about called Frankly. Frankly's trying to bring transparency to food sourcing for restaurateurs, farms, and people that produce specialty goods. We want to make it easy to know that people are doing things the right way and to make it easy for people to find the places that are doing things the right way so you can grow your business because you care about what you're doing. If you have any interest in this product or just want to know more about it, you can email me S-T-R-O-M-I-E at P-H-R-A-N-K dot L-Y or check out the website, frankly, P-H-R-A-N-K dot L-Y. And we're back. So we were we were talking a little bit about cocktails before with, uh, you know, local sourcing. And I find it's, um, there's kind of been an interesting trend recently. I want to, you know, hear what you think about it. There's a, um, this hyper-local in restaurants, I don't know if you've seen some of these places. Kind of the what they're calling this. Um, oh, with the, like the Denmark and you know the the Nordic style, very hyper local. And if there's not citrus locally, not using it in the restaurants. Kind of an interesting, interesting trend. And there's a place in Portland, Maine, that does that. And you know, places edge towards Alicante does that more so. But you know, they're still a little bit friendly mm-hmm. to general taste. Yeah, I mean. I'm fine with eating with the seasons. I mean, if you got a good creative chef and, you know, it's, I'm perfectly fine with that. I mean, I don't personally need a lemon every day or I honestly love a strawberry from June to the end of July or mid July. And I'm satisfied. I mean, I mean, and especially when you're eating a strawberry in June and July, they actually taste like strawberries. Yeah. But, and then, you know, it goes back to the other conversation too, that 
preservation. I mean, if the place is freezing strawberries and, you know, taking care of stuff when it's in season, I mean, it really extends your menu and your options. Yeah, I mean, that is kind of the kind of the other alternative. That's It was catching on for a little bit at home, and I think it's still popular, um, whether it's pickling or jarring or whatever. Um, we do have amazing produce coming out of our area, and if you have these techniques in your arsenal, you can keep a lot of great stuff through the winter time. Yeah, and you can really stretch your dollar because, I mean, if you start canning tomatoes when they're in the peak of season and they're so stinking cheap, I mean, yeah. how can you go wrong? I mean, you add some labor to it and you're still so far ahead. Well, and especially even if you go slightly past peak. I mean, if you in that peak time where everything, there's bushels of them available and they don't have to be pretty. Yeah. And I think that's the other thing. I mean, when you're when you're going to the market, you see that diversity of vegetables. Um, they don't have to be pretty. Uh, you know, supermarket pretty is nice. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, a tomato with a blemish on it, you're making sauce or jarring them. It doesn't matter. Yeah. I, I'm i on the fence about that. I mean, people still eat with their eyes. I mean, it's unfortunately, they pick it up, they look at it, and, well, I don't know. It's got a little nick. Or you know, Some people are, are really great, and they'll, they'll take it as it comes. Or if they like it, it's a big tomato, but it's got one spot. They're like, oh, that's fine. You know, that's great. But, Sometimes they, you know, especially at Rochester, people have been taken advantage of over the years. So they dig through the basket to the bottom to make sure nothing's rotten in there. And yeah. uh, I mean, there there is well, some of that, but well, it's it's kind of the difficulty of, um, you know, Brighton Market probably a little bit easier, but dealing with the, you know, you're selling at the Rochester Public Market, and you're it's not necessarily a flat playing field when it comes to what you're doing and how you're doing it. Oh, yeah, there's no rules there. I mean, you do whatever you want, and, um, you know, we've tried to establish it. We're selling, you know, number one product that's fresh and real delicious, and people come back for that. You know, maybe we might even have such a small percentage of that market, but we're I'm happy with what we're doing, and it's been successful, and people like, what, like it, so we're just going to keep doing it. Yeah, and I do have to say, your stored crops are pretty damn impeccable. <laughs> yeah, and... and None of that's rocket scientists. I mean, people have been storing stuff for years. And, yeah. you know, we 2013, we built a 60 by 48 facility with three different coolers in it and, um, you know, different temperatures. And we're able to do that kind of stuff a lot real efficiently. And um, in the fall, it's sort of painful because you're paying all this labor to put all this stuff away. And I mean, we're still selling it, you know, until June or so. But you know, at that point, you've recouped your labor, and it's all profit, so to speak. But so, what, what's the what's the key? What's the key to storing things during the winter? I mean, because you can do it at home, to a point. To a point. I uh, mean, what, what's what's the key? What's the key to keeping keeping things nice over over time? And they are storage crops. Like you're not storing tomatoes through the winter time. <laughs> you're storing you know hard crops. You know, yeah. the roots, their things. Yeah, like I that. mean, a lot of things like to be real cool and high humidity and. You know, potatoes and right now they're, you know, somewhat cool, but they don't like the humidity. So we have two different temperatures, two different humidities, or we might wrap something with in a bag or in plastic just to keep it from drying out. And then we're only washing them as we need them. We, they're all packed dirty because dirt's a real good preservative. It's a great insulator too. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, it's it's one of those things you, you think like, oh, well, cold all the way through is great. But that insulating where it's not bouncing between temperatures too much, it's yep. not, the humidity is not touching the vegetable. And it's nice, and each room is pretty good size, so you got quite the thermal mass, really. So once you know it's full and it's cooled down, it holds it pretty well. Yeah. Um, so you're talking about eating with the seasons. Um, what does cooking look look like on the you know on the farm with you, know, <laughs> you and the family? I mean, is well tonight was pretty exceptional. We had um, bacon and eggs and toast. <laughs> oh, there is almost nothing better for dinner than bacon and eggs. We, I mean, any kind of egg. I love eggs for dinner. We always have a surplus of eggs that have cracks or whatever that you can't sell. And so we're always trying to use them all. And um, so it's a quick meal. I mean, she actually baked the uh, bacon in the oven on a baking sheet. It's You don't have to flip it. You just put it in there and you pull it out. Really and, consistent, too. Yes. Yep. And um, then um, she fries the eggs up in the frying pan and, you know, the kids eat them right down and... It's a healthy meal and um, it's easy. Yeah, and I think that's it's one of those you know people you know, like you romanticize everything. Um, you know what eggs are are the best convenience dinner you can have. I mean, dollar for dollar for protein, they're one of the cheapest proteins you can buy. Yeah, and um, and actually, I think the bacon we had tonight was from Bostrom Farms, which we bought uh, a we bought a half a pig from them. Actually, maybe a couple of years ago, so it's been in all of it. We 
cleaned out a freezer a while ago and we found some hidden treasures. So uh. <laughs> a lot of people would love to find hidden bacon in their yeah. freezers. Um, but yeah, that's I, I I actually really enjoy. I've done that a couple times with friends. Um, I think we bought we bought half a cow, we bought a whole pig, and we had a uh, we had a meat draft. Yeah. Um, you know, we had you know, drew you know you drew uh, you know who went first. You went to like a, like a fantasy football draft. Mm-hmm. You go one through eight, eight through one, and you pick your cut. You pick yeah. the pick your, pick the package. It's actually it's. It's a fun thing to do, and it it's also gets you engaged with a farm. Yeah, and I think if you're ready to take that next step and you're looking to save a little bit of money and you got a freezer, there's n- no way better to do it than buying you know, a chunk of an animal. It's already cut up. It's packaged beautifully. You just got to pull it out of the freezer, and you just thaw it and cook it. I mean, it's you got an arsenal in your basement you could use at any time. Yeah, and also make sure you tell them you want the organ meats. <laughs> don't, don't, don't let them eat them. They're delicious. Yeah. Make sure you get your tongue. Make sure if you're buying a cow, make sure you get a beef tongue. Yeah, and make sure you get stuff like that. With pork, I mean, you can get the shoulders smoked. I mean, there's so many options with smoking and oh, curing yeah. and um, different kinds of sausages. And you know, we were using uh, just ground pork in place of um, ground beef for quite a while because that's what yeah. we had. Absolutely, and it's all about it's all about understanding flavors. Um, you know, it tastes different. It tastes different than ground beef. Yeah, but you know what? You can season it a little bit differently. You can let it play lighter. It's a lighter. It's a lighter flavor. Yeah, and going back to how much you love crockpots. I mean, we you know <laughs> some pork steaks and sauerkraut and potatoes in a crockpot. Sure. I mean, how can you go wrong? You pull it out and everything's falling apart. And yeah, uh, and absolutely. But look at that. What do you have? You have you had something that was frozen. You bought from somewhere. You have a preserved crop, sauerkraut, mm-hmm. um, which I love sauerkraut. Yeah, it's so good. Do you guys do you guys make that yourselves? Or? No, we've never never made it. No. See, it's I've never done sauerkraut. I've done you know I've started getting into the you know fermented pickling mm-hmm. more, um, but I'd like to do sauerkraut this year. I think that would be that'd be a fun yeah. thing. That we used to help our friends um, Nordic Farms, Dick and Noreen. We used to make pickles with them, and that was a lot of fun. You know, we know beet pickles and cucumber pickles, and but we never never got into sauerkraut. Yeah, it's it's one of those. One of those things I know a lot of my you know friends like, oh, my grandmother made sauerkraut. Yeah, they had those big crocks. They put them in their basement and, you know, you chop up the sauerkraut and the salt and then put a plate on top with a brick so it uh, doesn't dehydrate. And, yeah. You know, but you got to endure the smell. I mean, you... <laughs> yeah. You know, if, if you like the smell of, you know, fr- uh, fermenting, I don't want to use the word rotting, but fermenting <laughs> cabbage. Um, then again, I like kimchi. I like all that kind of stuff. Kimchi is so trendy right now. I oh, mean, it's so people good. are... You know, and you can make kimchi out of anything. I mean, radishes, uh, whatever. I mean, any anything that any greens, it doesn't matter. Uh, carrots, uh, carrots, radishes, Chinese uh, cabbage, collard greens, any of these things. It's all these all these fermented goods and pickled goods are so flexible. You can do anything you want. It you, opens up the world of flavors to you, really. The our contact with Thompson Hospital was the CFO, and he's like, "Oh, we were down in D.C. last weekend, and we had this radish kimchi." Oh, and he says, "I never took radishes ever off the CSA line, but now I know I can make kimchi out of them. I'm going to be using radishes this year." That's awesome. <laughs> you know, he's all he's ready to go. But what a great thing! Yeah. Um, the more you, the more you can use these. You're right. Everything, everything's kind of rotating. Everything's trendy in a different time and place. Radishes were trendy, you know, a long time ago. Yeah. And they nobody wanted radishes for. For how long? For years. Yep. 10, 20 years. Nobody wanted radishes. But there's even so many kinds of radishes. I mean, people really, now in this oh, time of year, like, let's talk about radishes. Watermelon radishes, black radishes. I mean, daikons. I mean, uh, what was, and, uh, oh, what was, what was it? There was another one you had, right? No, those, was that the hot curry? No, those were the turnips. they're a turnip. They're yeah. similar to a radish, but they're, uh, bigger and they're, um, nice in the springtime. Yeah. But yeah, those those black and watermelon radishes. Sometimes you get that aggressive spiciness. Sometimes yep. they're just crunchy and you know just that little bit of bitterness. Uh, it's it's a it's a great product. And you know if you like traditional foods, you like Mexican food, you're putting it on your taco. You want yeah. you want that crunch. You want that little bit of bitterness, that astringency. It's great. And a lot of restaurants are doing a pickle platter. You know they'll, they'll oh. have their own fermented products, and you know they might have radishes, they might have beets, might be cauliflower, whatever they you know it's in season. And it's a great appetizer. Absolutely. And they don't even have to tell you what it is. You know, it's kind of like, you know, figure it out as you go. Yeah. I mean, there's there's nothing. It's so exciting. And especially when you see those watermelon radishes, that color. Yeah. It just springs off yep. the plate. Um, especially when you shave that on top of something. That that splash of color, 
and it's not fake. It's not, it's not artificial. It's real color. Yep. It's and it's you. You're right. People do eat with your eyes, and on a you know um, a presented plate, when that pops on there, yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, and it, may, it excites a lot of things. It excites the palate. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I love seeing that. Seeing these things that used to be popular. I mean, cabbage is a great example. You know, cabbage. It's never been super trendy, but there's so many things you can do with it now. Well, it's going to be trendy here this weekend and next weekend, and then after that, it sort of fizzles out again. Oh, but. that's right. You're stacking them up. We're bringing lots of cabbages next week. For the good old Irish uh, holiday coming up oh, here. Oh, yeah. You're bringing, bringing all your cabbages out? Oh, we'll bring a few. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, I've, I've enjoyed... That's another thing. You're doing cured meats. Corned beef and cabbage. Come on. I've, I've done... I've done uh, you're doing corned beef from scratch. is kind of fun. Yeah, and people... It's not terribly hard, and once no. people learn how to do it, they, you know, it's... You're just getting involved with the food process. You're just taking the stuff you buy in the store. I mean, it is it is corned beef, but there's a lot of other kind stuff of, in there, too. It's kind of corned beef. Yeah. But when it comes down to it, what is corned beef other than it's salt and flavor? Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes you use pickling salt for, for color's sake, mm-hmm. but it's salt and flavor. It's a old school technique. But it's an ethnic dish. I mean, they're taking that beef that wasn't as desirable nobody wanted brisket and now they're making it into this great meal that they've mixed with you know with cabbage and maybe potatoes and that's what they lived on i mean yeah throw some onions yeah that's it's all it's all root vegetables it's all briskets were garbage meat back then nobody's eating the brisket so find a way to use it find a way to eat it how do you i mean look at look at lobsters (laughs) But Nobody. these barbecue places, they changed brisket around to uh, oh, isn't that crazy? a different level. Have you been to some of those places yeah. before? It's it's a crazy it's crazy how great brisket can be now. Oh yeah, but it's it's all about attention to detail. It is. You got to do it right. Because when you do it bad, yeah. you've had have you had some, you've had bad brisket Tough before? And chewy. And... Oh, it's the worst. It, it's one of those things that when you do it wrong, it's it is the worst barbecue meat. And when you do it well, it's amazing. It's probably the best. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, but I think that comes with a lot of things. You know, you can, you can farm terribly and, you know, get a product that's sellable and people, people still buy it, but the people that are doing things the right way. Yeah. I mean, we're sort of a unique situation because we see these people every week. So they don't forget. They, they remember the bad <laughs> things really, really fast and the good things tend to fizzle away sometimes. Yeah. But I mean, it's also credibility. You're there every week. Or thereabouts. I mean, they're yeah. you know they're they know you, they see your face. It's kind of hard to avoid. <laughs> it's kind of scary, but yeah. <laughs> Especially, I mean, Rochester. I always do that one myself. So I mean, they got no choice. <laughs> <laughs> got to see, you got to see Phil when you're coming to the market. Yeah. Um, I guess where where want to tail off is talking about the Rochester public market. There's been a lot of changes, a lot of changes there over the last what is it six months or so, right? Maybe a little more, a little bit more. Yeah, started last early last summer. Yeah, I would say maybe even last spring. Actually, they, it was because the cocktail revival. It was partly there for. Yep, you know, the, the demolition of that new shed over there. They added the, um, I guess they call it the D shed, which historically it used to be there back when it was a farmers market, and then um, for whatever reason it dilapidated or tore down. I don't know the whole history, to tell you the truth, but yeah. So they resurrected that one, and then they um, tore down the inside shed. So they moved those people over there, and. Yeah, it's been a little bit of growing pains. I mean, it's it's tough. I mean, you relocate vendors and you change the flow of things. And the food guys are in shipping containers now in these uh, modified, uh, which is pretty cool. I mean, the and I think permanently in those containers, right? They're just moving them back over there. Yes. Yep. And I it's, actually kind of like them. I think it's it's you know it, I think there there's some growing pains with that. You're right. It is, and but. I wish I knew the, the gentleman's name, but he's the one that designs the food trucks around town here, and he got the contract. Oh, design. So they they designed all the those containers and set them all up. So Ian, right? I think it's Ian. I, I don't his know his last name. I think it's Ian from M Design. He, so it's nice. It's, I mean, it's a local flair. I mean, it's locally done, and um, and even this time of year, I only go on Saturdays. But every Saturday, you notice something's happening. They're not just laying idle. So. Which has been good. I mean that, and that the new shed over there, that D shed, is kind of the temporary house for some of the indoor vendors that used to be there before. Yep. And I think it's actually kind of a, it's actually a nice area in a lot of ways. Yeah. So it's sort of crazy too that they're gonna tear down the temporary enclosure and make it an open shed where it might be nice to have two inside sheds. But uh, in the wintertime, especially. I mean, yeah. the walls are you can just take off the damn walls in the summertime if you want. 
or just make it. I I don't know. I think guess, make it permanent. I would love it. I mean, look. Have you ever been to Syracuse? I mean, they have multiple sheds that are enclosed, and you back your truck in, and they close the door and turn the heat on. I mean, oh, that's nice. How nice would that be? Yeah. Well, it's like when I go to bigger cities and I look at the look at the market style in some of the bigger cities. You look at you know Ferry Plaza Market. You look at uh, you know the big uh, big market in Seattle. Uh, you look at all these all these fancy markets. Thing that resonates to me is yeah the vendors you know the the food vendors and I think we we need to be more of an agricultural side here, but there's so many opportunities for these indoor spaces to become the hub of Rochester food in so many ways. I think it's there's, yeah. there's so many opportunities for us to move forward with what we have here. But I, the customers that come to Rochester, they've got to be some of the dedicated customers there are because. Back last spring, I had to go to a funeral, so I had staff come to relieve me. And then I, I left the market at like 10 o'clock, and they had to park the car over across Union Street. So these people are walking from across the street, carrying packages. You know, it's not easy. No. And then they're making a you know a choice that they want to do that, and they're doing it. Yeah. Because there's very limited parking within the facility. And if it is available, it's kind of hard to get to because there's just such a cluster of cars moving around. Yeah, and the people are terrible. I mean, I hate people. People are the worst, and especially driving people, and especially driving people on a Saturday morning. Driving people with no patience—that's yeah, uh, what not, it boils down to. You know, I, I'll be—I'll be overly patient, and I'll—I'll I'll wait for a spot. No, I'm good, but it's the people doing dumb things that just drives me crazy yeah. when I'm trying to get in there. And obviously, you—you're you're not dealing with the traffic because you're there before people and there after people. Yeah, but I mean, that's one of the first times in a while that I've left mid-market, you know, yeah. to go home and. Um, it's kind of a cluster. <laughs> it is. It is. And, you know, it's, it's more and more so and people driving and walking from farther away and mm-hmm. taking shuttles now. Yep. Yeah, they have a tram service. I mean, I don't know how much it's utilized, but they offer it. Yeah. I wonder how much that's going to change with, uh, with Uber and Lyft getting back into town soon. Well, I, I, hope, I, hope, I hope that changes it a little bit. Yeah. I mean, still it's serving the local community, so I don't know how much... I mean, I guess it might Uber and those guys might bring somebody to the market that's within a little further distance away that yeah. wouldn't come. But I don't know; it'd be hard to say. Yeah, it would definitely make, maybe make parking a little easier. As long as they were would facilitate like uh, a drop, some convenient way for the people to, if they're just dropping the car off or whatever, to to make it functional and easy. Yeah, yeah, and that that's, doesn't always happen. No, and it's there's a lot of things there that are. It's it's. Things sometimes seem harder than maybe they should be. Yeah. But, you know, it's the same with a lot of different places. I can say that about a lot of areas get, of Rochester. You get government involved and... <laughs> Everything seems a little bit harder yeah. than it should be. Oh, all right. Well, I think we've done what I wanted to do here today, Phil. Wow. That's it? I think so. I think we're good. I mean, we, we did, we've done a solid 50 minutes. I think we're in good shape for today. Um, so let's uh, throw your plugs in again. You can uh, visit me in the markets, uh, Rochester on Saturday, Brighton on Sunday, and then uh, summertime, we're at uh, Thompson Hospital on Mondays, Candigua on uh, Saturdays, Thursdays at Rochester again, and then uh, you can go to our website, fisherhillfarm.com, and that's about the extent of it. Awesome. So you can find me, uh, Food About Town on Facebook, Stromy, at Stromy on Twitter and Instagram, and uh, thanks for coming over, man. I'm glad we got a chance to talk for a little bit longer than... Five minutes over uh, carrots and eggs. Yes, yeah, hard at the market. You like to entertain conversations, but when there's people behind you, they don't like to wait. So it's no. Like, and I'm like, I just go away. I'm I'm busy. Yeah. I don't want to deal with you right now. Lousy customers. Uh, I know. Hand well, me money. I can't. That's the worst. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Phil. Thank you.